just it's particularly nice to be able to meet with the people with whom she practices on a regular basis. So uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, as uh, Leanne said, I, I made my career in politics I, uh, in, from almost every angle possible. I, I taught political science for a while. I was a political hack in the Capitol and ran for office and held office myself for 16 years um, in Yolo County. And um, have found it an incredible teacher, an incredible Dharma teacher. And so when, when Shaila asked if I would come and, and fill in for her, she suggested that since the political soup seems to be a bit thick out there these days, um, that maybe I could talk a little bit about uh, politics in light of the Dharma and <clears throat> um, see if that, that might be of some help. Since, I mean, it's not just me, right? It's <laughs> it's out there. It's out there. Well, I like to um, I, I like to to note that um, uh, I, when I was when I was uh, when I wound up in politics, I used to think, my gosh, political science is to politics the way literary criticism is to literature. You know, it's just not the same thing. Political analysis, political punditry, is. Not the same thing. What you read in the New York, book, New York Times book review is not the book. And all the political analysis that you do or that you hear and are exposed to is not politics. <clears throat> On the other hand, all of us are politicians. And people often go, oh, not me. I'm not. But we're all politicians. Politics is um, a human activity that we all do. We're not all professionals at it. You know, um, and that's to be expected. Uh, I can I can make some motions with my body that some people might recognize as running, uh, but I'm not a professional runner. I can ride my bike, but not like Paul, who can ride 200 miles. Um, you know, I. And if you're going to do something seriously like, like that, if you're going to be a marathon runner or a, someone who can ride 200 miles on their bike. It takes some practice, and it takes some attention to training, to your body, to your diet, to, you know. That doesn't mean that the, that the rest of us can't sort of run or ride a bike. And if you're going to be a professional politician, you pay a lot more serious attention to it uh, than we might if we're just lay people. It's an interesting concept. We're lay politicians. <laughs> um, but we are, we are about politics. Politics, now, you know, if you're a political scientist, there are political scientists who have made a career off of some definition of what power is and distinguishing it from influence and all kinds of issues of legitimacy. And <clears throat> but from the standpoint of practitioners, power is just a matter of getting what you want. It's, a, it's an ability to get what you want. That's power, the ability to get what you want. If you can't get what you want, you don't have, you can't get what you want. So at, at its heart, politics, political behavior, when we're being political, is just about desire. It's, well, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, uh, is about desire. It's about wanting. 
And it begins with discontent. Because you have to want, you want things to be different. It also begins with delusion, because the idea, I guess, is that if we made things the way we wanted, then, then our suffering would cease. You know, so thinking that, thinking that changing the world and making it the way we had in mind, that that, that would, that would straighten things out, that's, that's delusional. <laughs> you could change the world all you want, but dissatisfaction is, is, uh, built into us. So power is the ability to get what we want, wanting. How do we go about getting what we want, particularly from other people? Actually, that's, that's, um, uh, that's really at the core of political behavior, is getting what you want from other people, getting them to do what you want, getting them to behave the way you want. Now, the Buddha said that built into us, built into our experience every moment, our experience is either pleasant or unpleasant. Sometimes, occasionally, neither pleasant nor, nor unpleasant. And we get into trouble, of course, because we like that pleasant stuff, and when it shows up, we want more of it. And we don't want it to go away. And when the unpleasant stuff shows up, we go, and we want it to go away, and uh, try to get rid of it. Right? And how do we... How do we behave? We, we try to maximize pleasant experience. We try to move the valence from the most unpleasant to the most pleasant. That's how we spend our time, pretty much. Or it's not just me, right? <laughs> no. The master art, the master political art is lobbying. It's getting other people to do what you want. And how do we do that? You know the old story about how you, you make a donkey move? You know, you dangle a carrot in front of them, and you hit them with a stick. And then they, you got the carrot and you got the stick, the enticement and the, the fear, the desire and the aversion, the wanting the pleasant carrot and not wanting the unpleasant stick. So how do we get what we want from other people? Well, it's not a mystery. We promise them things, and we threaten them with things. We threaten them with unpleasant experience, and we promise them pleasant experience. It's not not very complicated. The trick is how deeply you can read the other person, how deeply you can recognize what will motivate them, forward or away, you know, by attraction or, or, or not. So that's, that's, it's pretty simple. It's got infinite permutations, but that's what we're doing. When you're, you know, on the playground in the kindergarten, you say, you know, if you give me your peanut butter sandwich, I'll be your best friend, or something like that. You know, we did that kind of stuff, you know. Um, now we say things like, uh, I'd like to help your campaign, Senator, but it would be a lot easier for me to, uh, to help if you were supporting our, our uh, amendment. Same thing. So, so that's, that's, that's pretty much what we're doing. The trick is 
that we've got ideas that we're attached to about the way things ought to be. Things ought to be fixed. And, and the notion that things need to be fixed, that's pretty interesting. Anybody think that the world couldn't use some fixing up? We really do. We really think that, don't we? We don't think it's perfect just as it is. We think it, it ought to be fixed. Ajahn Jumnian, who's a, uh, a Thai uh, master, actually in, in Jack Hornfield's book, Living Buddhist Masters, it used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, and he had these biographies of a dozen teachers from Asia. But then they all died except for Ajahn Jumnian, so he had to change the title to Living Dharma. But Ajahn Jumnian shows up at Spirit Rock every once in a while. He's wonderful. He's very funny. At one point he said... He, he, he was describing the, action, the way desire works. He said, desire works like a moth and a flame. The moth only sees the flame. The flame is bright. Everything else is dark. But what the, and the moth goes straight for the flame. But what the moth doesn't see is the moth's own compulsion to go to the flame. Okay. Just the flame is beautiful. For us, we are enthralled with the object of whatever the desire is or with the fear or aversion to whatever the object is. And we don't see our own, uh, the reactivity that's going on here. So when we think the world needs to be fixed, we're just projecting our own desire onto the thing. It's the flame. The world needs, we need carbon footprint something, or we need, you know, whatever, whatever. You've got a list of things. You know, personally, it could be a new job, or it could be, you know, another better spouse or partner, right? It could be all kinds of, you know, just an infinite number of things could make things better. All of those things that we need to fix, that we need to improve, just a projection of that compulsion, that wanting. And, of course, that's it's delusional to think that if we got what we wanted, we'd be... You know, uh, Oscar Wilde said there are two great disappointments in life. You know, the first is not getting what you want, and the second is getting what you want. You know. So we're attached... We, we, we are attached to our ideas about how things ought to be. You know, attachment to views, clinging to views is one of the four kinds of clinging that the Buddha identified. And we forget about views a lot. When we talk about, you know, for years when we talked about pleasant and unpleasant experience, you know, in my head I was hearing, you know, it's nice and warm, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, it's too cold or way too hot or, you know, my body's achy or hurting or, you know, the, but, but the, the, What's most common are thoughts that are pleasant or unpleasant. We don't even notice them as pleasant or unpleasant because we think the thoughts are the same thing as what they're referring to. You know, the map, the thoughts, the perceptions, you know, they're built in. Buddha says the mind represents the world to itself. Perceptions are built in to our experience of the world. And then we believe them. That that belief that's that's clinging. You know, we're we're clinging to um, 
we're clinging to our idea of how things things are the way we think they are. Things ought to be the way we think they ought to be. The fact that the map may not be the territory uh, eludes us. And so thoughts arise in our mind. If I, if I raise the idea of how do I put this? Our president, pleasant or unpleasant? The war in Iraq, pleasant, unpleasant? Oh dear, what came to my mind there was the San Francisco Giants baseball season. Pleasant or unpleasant? If you're paying attention, you know. <laughs> it's worse than unpleasant. <laughs> It's downright painful. Um, we're saying there's always next year already, and it's only May. Ah, well. <clears throat> pleasant, unpleasant. Now, I, after the State of the Union address, I asked the people in my saga how many people had listened, and a handful of hands went up, just a few. And why not? Can't stand it. Couldn't hear them, can't listen to it. You know, too painful to, you know... Um, unpleasant, pleasant and unpleasant. So our thoughts become driving forces. We don't even notice the pleasant and unpleasant. The Supreme Court rules that gay marriage is legal, pleasant or unpleasant. Well, that's not going to be the same for all people. Some people find that pleasant, some people find it unpleasant. It doesn't have anything to do with the ruling itself. It has to do with the ecology of our own mind. Our understanding of things. Oh, and of course, you know, we identify with these thoughts, with these ideas about the way things are. So if someone suggests that... Um, Something is not the way, boy, you know, I can light you guys up really easy. There are things I could suggest if I started sounding like Rush Limbaugh, you know. Um, wouldn't be hard. It's just the ideas. But we're attached to them when we take them personally. There's a huge amount of energy that's tied up in our thoughts about the way things are and the way things ought to be. Huge amount. We get, any, anybody ever got into an argument over a thought, over an idea? Yeah. Heck, I argue with myself. Less ta- filling, more taste. You know. <laughs> we can do that. There's a huge amount of energy in that. And it's, it's really important the way we understand things because our understanding becomes the basis for our intention. It's not a mistake that the Buddha put uh, right understanding as the first of the Eightfold Path, first element, and right intention follows it. Because if you have a, a particular understanding of the way things are, the way things ought to be, your activity will follow from it. Now, if you're a politician, we all are, but if you're a professional, 
and you're trying to persuade people to do something, like vote for you, you want to conjure... I, I used to think of it as, as magical conjuring when I, was, when I was doing campaigns. It was magical conjuring. You conjure an image that's hopeful, vote for my guy, and, and uh, things will be great. Vote for the opponent, fear. Think of how bad it would be. So the politics of hope and fear are built into our nature as sensitive beings that prefer pleasant experience to unpleasant experience. Going to vote for the person who is going to make things lousy? So usually, it's the politics of hope and fear. And broadly speaking, I mean, you know, isn't isn't uh, the Democratic candidates are talking about hope? Obama is, and McCain is going to talk about fear, protecting ourselves. Just very broad brush, very broad brush. The ideas, the ideas, the thoughts themselves, you know, they, aren't, they don't float freely. We adopt ones that accord with our, our sensibilities. It's a great, um, my gosh, it's old now, uh, a book called Ut- Ideology and Utopia by a uh, German sociologist named Karl Mannheim. Basically what he said, what he noted, he was a study, and he noted that ideas of a better future utopian visions occurred more frequently among uh, dispossessed people who wanted to see change. And that the ideologies of you know, maintaining all the good things we've got occurred more generally among the established uh, classes. So even the ideas that we think are based in our interests, our wants. We think that we make these choices based on our own rationality, but we make the decisions based on, our, on what we want. So politicians pitch to you, and they, they, they pitch. The politics of hope, politics of fear, maybe the politics of anger. The... the, the, the um, Unwholesome intentions that the Buddha identified under uh, the intention element of the Eightfold Path, desire, wanting, ill will, anger, and cruelty. We're not cruel, we think. We'll get to that. So you could, you could want, oh, I don't know, think of all the things you want that are, that are tied up in the, you know, health care and clean up the environment and reduce our militarism, all the things we want. Anybody? We want those, right? And then we could be going off of anger. So if, you've, if you're a Larry, if your representative is Larry Craig or, you know, one of the, or, or Elliot Spitzer knew it from far enough off that he, uh, he left on the spot. But you could, you could vote against someone who's abusing their so sometimes in politics, in, in where, where I am, there's a, um, there's a, a, a guy who's uh, running who is being accused of uh, 
not really living in the area, and yet he's a, he's a current member of the Senate. He's, he's taking his uh, per diem, and so he's there, you know, they're trying to make you angry at him. So anger could work. And cruelty. We think we're not cruel, but you know, when you're applying a stick, what you're doing is, is intending um, to the prospect of harm, discomfort, unpleasant experience. That's how we, that's how we, we treat. That's how, that's, if you don't get the car back by 10 o'clock, you won't drive it for a week. You know, we, we conjure up uh, unpleasant experience. We do it with our kids. Or maybe you don't, but I did. <laughs> you know. um, I mean, when things get rough, anything. <laughs> Reach for anything handy. Um, so we all, we all use, you know, desire, ill will cruelty as, as motivators. Hmm. And that, 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 that plays... So if you're out there in the world and, and you feel yourself being manipulated, you are, and you're being manipulated by your own compulsion to fixate on that flame. Whether the flame is, you know... I don't know why I just thought of this. The Lexus that you want. I have, Gil, Gil always talks about, or used to talk about Lexus as a lot. It's, a, it's always been the icon. Maybe it's, or maybe it's the fear of you know, something. So there are a lot of people who, are, who will be motivated by fear or anger. So we do it when we're players. We're in that soup. And, and the extent to which we're not mindful of our, our impulses in these directions, those are, those, that's the extent to which we uh, are, are manipulable. So the unskillful intentions, they flow from misunderstanding about the way things are. So if, if our views are uh, diluted, it's going to be very hard to behave in a skillful way. And sometimes it's difficult to imagine what acting out of skillful intention might be. So I'm, what I'm going to do is to, is to, is to, is to uh, uh, read a, a couple stories because I think sometimes it's better to um, illustrate some of these things um, rather than just talk abstractly about them. One of the questions that, that comes up often is, you know, are we just supposed to sit here? You know, How, what about social action? What about, there's a great moment in the movie Gandhi where I can't even remember what they were discussing, but he's in the room with all these people and they finally... They all rise and they're going to go out and do stuff. And Gandhi says, let me just ask one question. Are you, are you going out to be helpful or are you going out to punish? 
So if our motivation for our own political action is anger, it's very different than if our, than if our motivation is compassion. Are we going to help? Are we going to punish? If we perceive what we think is social injustice, are what we going to do is to go spank the perpetrator, or are we going to provide some help to the victims? So working, if the motivation is greed, we know what wanting is, I assume. We've all wanted. In fact, we spend most of our waking hours wanting one thing or another. Boy, if anybody finds out what that is, speaking as a practitioner. On the other side, what would would non-greed look like? I'm going to read a story from from the the canon, from the, the scriptures. The Buddha was living with, I know, he always lived with what, thousands of monks. There's always thousands of monks. I think that just means a lot. Um, with lots of monks, and in, in a place called Kosambi. And at that time, it was, enough, it was a big enough sangha of monks that there had become a master of the teachings and another master of the discipline, the, the rules of the, of, of the sangha. And one day the master of the, the Dharma left us a bowl with water in the latrine. And the master of the discipline said, that is an offense, you need to confess. And the other, and the other guy said, no, I didn't. Yes, he did. No, no, yes, no, 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 yes. And, and then pretty soon the Sangha was cha- you know, choosing up sides. And you know, it got pretty, pretty uh, unpleasant. And, and uh, the Buddha said to these guys, cool, this is probably not so many words, but in Pali he said it, you know, lighten up. And no, they said, just don't worry your little enlightened head about this, we'll take care of things, of course not. So pretty soon the Buddha split. Now, to jump to to the end of the story, I love the way this one resolved, because the Buddha split, and then what happens to the monks? Well, the people in the town, upon whom the monastics depended for their daily bread, literally, or their daily curry, they said, you guys, you're squabbling. You just drove the Buddha off. No more alms for you. It's a pretty big stick. <laughs> so, of course, they, uh, they made up. And the guy said, oh, maybe it was an offense. And they said, no, 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 it's just fine. And then they had to go find the Buddha and bring him back. Um, so just a nice illustration of stick. So the Buddha found himself, he went to visit his, his cousin, Anuruddha. And Anuruddha was living with, uh, he'd become a monk, uh, and he was living with a few other monks someplace. Um, <clears throat> so the Buddha shows up and he, after, after greeting him, he says, I hope you all live in accord, Anuruddha, as friendly and undisputing as milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely we do, Lord. But, Anuruddha, how do you do this? How do you live thus? And the venerable Anuruddha replied, Lord, as to that, 
I think that it's a gain and good fortune for me here that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain acts and words and thoughts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both in public and in private. And I think, why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do? And I act accordingly. It's a pretty high bar. You think of taking that attitude in regard to those with whom you live? But it's non-greed. It's the motivation. It's an intention. That's not all about me. It's a pretty high bar. But nothing wrong with a high bar. Nothing wrong. The North Star, if it stands high enough above the... uh, the horizon, you can actually see it. Um, well, maybe not from here. <laughs> Just the air. No judgment involved. Non-greed. Non-anger. What does non-anger look like? Oh, this is a story that I was pointed to by Carol Wilson. Mm-mm-mm. We all know about Martin Luther King and the the sit-ins in the early 60s. Carol pointed to this book by David Halberstam called The Children. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. Uh, And so I ordered it because I didn't realize it was 750 pages long. Um, And it's it's about uh, the people who, the kids who were on the street, mostly, who were were taking part, starting in the uh, the sit-ins in Nashville. A guy named um, Jim Lawson, who was a a Baptist, I believe he was Baptist, uh, a Baptist minister, a graduate student actually at the time, um, in seminary, and he was the one who taught the nonviolent tactics to the to the um, to the students. And actually, I'm convinced that without that, it, it never nothing would have happened because. The cops would have slapped them down, and they, everybody would have said, "Well, you know, they were acting out; they had it coming." It's like that moment in, in Gandhi where they're just beating the people down one after another, and eventually, you know, when TV TV was there, and you watch Bull Connor, and Jim Clark turn the dogs and the fire hoses on children. That was it. This is a story about Jim Lawson, um, told by uh, a guy named Bernard Lafayette, who was. They were walking from the church to the to the uh, uh, lunch counters in Nashville. Uh, Bernard was completely unprepared for the moment when he was tested. He had no time to remember his own internal debates. He was in a group of students walking from the First Baptist Church to the lunch counters, and he was near the end of the line, about three or four people from the end. Suddenly, a group of white toughs charged the black line and attacked one of his colleagues from American Baptist, a young man named Solomon Gort. It happened very quickly with a speed and intensity all its own. And yet at the same time, it seemed to take forever. Years later, he could remember almost all the details. The whites had knocked Solomon Gort down, 
and they were kicking him. And Bernard moved as quickly as he could to get back and protect Solomon, to put his body down on Gortz, as they had all been taught. That would make them switch their attention from Solomon to him. And they did, beating and kicking him instead. Just then, Jim Lawson walked over. He did not rush over as if to an accident or as if to stop a beating. Instead, he walked over calmly as if to a long-standing appointment. It was as if he knew all along that Solomon Gort was going to be knocked down and mauled and that Bernard Lafayette was going to try to protect him. Lawson's arrival shifted the attention of the whites from the fallen Gort and Lafayette to Lawson. The thing about Jim, Bernard remembered, was that he was so utterly self-assured, so confident, as if he were accustomed to dealing with white toughs beating up fallen black demonstrators every day of his life. Jim seemed nonchalant, just another day at the office. The leader of the whites was sporting what was the prevailing uniform of the day for white toughs, black pants, black leather motorcycle jacket, <clears throat> a duck's ass haircut. When he saw Lawson, he was enraged. Enraged by Lawson's coolness, and he spat at him. Lawson looked at him and asked for a handkerchief. The man, stunned, reached in his pocket and handed Lawson a handkerchief. And Lawson wiped the spit off himself as calmly as he could. Then he looked at the man's jacket and started talking to him. Did he have a motorcycle or a hot rod? A motorcycle was the answer. Jim asked a technical question or two, and the young man started explaining what he'd done to customize his bike. Amazingly, Bernard thought, these two men were now talking about the levels of horsepower in a motorcycle. A few seconds earlier, they seemed to be sworn enemies, one ready to maul the other. By this time, both Solomon Gort and Bernard Lafayette were back up on their feet. The line was moving again, and Jim and the young man were still talking about the man's motorcycle. In that brief, frightening moment, Jim had managed to find a subject with the, which they both shared and had used it in a way that made each of them more human in the eyes of the other. As they walked away, Jim waved to the man, and the man remained still, neither accepting the friendship nor, for that matter, rejecting it. It had been a marvelous example of Christian love for Bernard. Non-anger. <clears throat> Pretty high standard, again. Nothing wrong with high standard. Non-cruelty. Cruelty, you know, the punishment, the stick, the thing we... we apply to try to encourage people to do what we want. <clears throat> it's usually, you know, it can be pretty painful. You know, in incarceration and pretty serious stuff. Even a traffic ticket, is there's pain there. Non-cruelty. A couple of examples from Jack Cornfield's book on the art of forgiveness. It's about, this first one is about the Babemba tribe. The Babemba, I looked this up. <clears throat> this must have been a story from the past because the Babemba now number about 70,000. So it's, this isn't sort of like a little village anymore. It's near uh, Lake Tanganyika in Africa. In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, see it's not really a tribe, 70,000 
picky picky, but it doesn't seventy thousand doesn't sound like a tribe to me. It sounds like Davis. <laughs> the tribe of Davis. Well, anyway. When a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he's placed in the center of the village alone and unfettered. All work ceases and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused, one at a time, about all the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. The tribal ceremony often lasts several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. Non-cruelty. But the real, the, the real ex- example of non-cruelty, <clears throat> um, I mean, it doesn't have to happen in South Africa. This is a story that Jack recounts. Once on a train from Washington to Philadelphia, you actually may recall this, because I think this story actually showed up on 60 Minutes or something. It was pretty stunning. Once, once on the train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African-American man who'd worked for the State Department in, in India, but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who had committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end, when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and said, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in a juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his killer. He'd been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. For some time, they talked, and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step-by-step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at his friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her house. For eight months he lived there, ate her food, and worked at the job. Then one evening she called called him into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited, and then she started. Do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he said. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house, and that's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room, and I'd like to adopt you if you'll let me. Hmm. 
non-cruelty. It's a high bar. But the skillful intentions that the Buddha points at are models for us. Political behavior, the politics that we engage in every day, that manipulate us every day based on our own desire and aversion, lead unerringly to our own suffering, to our continued suffering. Now, there's one... uh, Is that the um, the quote is from another great teacher? Blessed are the peacemakers. So politics is is politics, and peacemaking is peacemaking. So why don't we take a couple minutes here and see if there are questions or puzzlements or any comments or thoughts about? Politics. We're in the midst of this for a while, for the duration. Please. What's your experience with the politics of Buddhism? The politics of Buddhism? I'm not. I'm not sure. um, You know, politics is politics. (laughs) So. If you're talking about historically, like the emergence of the Mahayana in response to the uh, in response to the uh, um, the monks who preserved the Abhidhamma became the authorities, and the the Mahayana, you know, there was a rebellion there. Um, Politics is politics, and it flows from delusion, from the delusion that we can fix things according to our understanding of how things ought to be and make things better and eliminate suffering. You could eliminate all the oppression on the planet and not eliminate suffering. Because, because dukkha is built into our... I mean, the way I see it is if satisfaction is an issue for you, you're going to be dissatisfied. So Buddhist politics is like other politics. It's based on what I'm wanting. And, you know, you can see it. uh, um, Teachers who will say, oh, jhana's like this. No, it's like this. More filling, less taste, or whatever. It's a candy mint. It's a breath mint. You know. Um, Buddhist politics is like other politics. And we're all doing it all the time. We usually do it pretty unconsciously. And I found actually, just personally, I found that, my gosh, what a teacher, you know, as a a Dharma teacher for myself, because I found, you know, um, anything I said would be right in my face in the newspaper. the next day. So I had to be careful. I remember getting a phone call one morning. I was off at at a conference and a phone call came in. I was in a dispute uh, in the uh, the community and, you know, my pager went off. I had a pager 
and Pedro went up. So I go to get on the phone. It's uh, the newspaper reporter. So-and-so said this about you, and uh, what's your reaction? And boy, my reaction was unprintable. <laughs> yeah. And I found that actually I could watch my attitude change at, at, in the course of the sentence. And I, you know, I said, well, if they were to say, to say that I was, I can't even remember what the kind, would be, um, would not, would be um, misleading, I think was the word that I used. And I, I had to adjust my, that reactivity on the spot because what a great teacher. And politicians don't think they're crooked. They don't think of themselves any more than you think of yourself as crooked. And acting because, you know, uh, out of your interest. Because your interest is everybody's interest. Isn't that right? You'd like everyone to be happy and healthy and live in a clean environment. Right? We all have just the best intentions for everyone. And I bet you there's no disagreement here. Please. Ah, what? And so you're asking my my personal and professional opinion. Well, I think the notion of a perfect president is just an idea. It's an illusion. And the idea that there could be such a, such a beast is like thinking there could be a unicorn. It's just, just a, you know, it's a fantasy. Oh, so could they be elected? All things are conditioned. Whoever could be elected now couldn't have been elected then. Roosevelt couldn't have been elected now. Because you would have seen he was crippled. You've been watching the PBS uh, series on Roosevelt? He, was always, he always had to hold on to somebody because he couldn't walk. Boy, if we'd seen that, hmm, not a prayer. Yeah. And, and, you know, certain political people who've been successful today probably wouldn't have a prayer back then. So what looked good back then wouldn't function now. So you know the the, the question actually reminds me of okay I, I, I'm a baseball uh, geek so it reminds me of the you know how the broadcast well if he hadn't been thrown out at second base this home run would have turned the game around it would have been you think if he hadn't been thrown out at second base they wouldn't have thrown the same pitch it would have been a different you know the it's just happened the way it's happened. It couldn't be different. And actually, you'd have to say George Bush is George W. Bush, our current president, is the perfect president for the conditions that we had. 
We may not like it. But that's the way things, right? All things taken into consideration. <laughs> Please. Great question. The Buddha gave some advice to his own son. Um, he gave some advice to the Kalamas too. It was a very similar advice. Basically, if you know in your heart that an action that you're going to undertake may be to your detriment and the detriment of others, don't do it. If you find yourself in the midst of an action that you're realizing is for your detriment and the detriment of others. Stop. If you find that you've done something that has been to the detriment of yourself and others, and you can make amends, do so. But also, you can resolve not to do that again when you recognize it. Just recognizing it is huge. Because usually, we don't think we're, do we're damaging ourselves or others. I mean, we won't hurt ourselves. We're not... We may be dumb, but we're not stupid. <laughs> we won't hurt ourselves if we know we're about to do that. It's just that we act out of delusion. So to recognize when our intentions are not skillful, that's huge. And once you recognize that, then you, just, you'll, you may find yourself backing away on your own. Now, my advice, to, you know, advice, you know, all, we, you're not going to wait until we're fully awakened our hearts before we act in the world, politically or otherwise. So, you know, just wake up as much as you can and do the best you can. What else, what more can you do? You know, be as awake as you can be. Be as alert to what you're doing and what's happening as possible. And do the best you can. That's what more could you what more could you ask and and don't beat up on yourself when you slip cuz hey that just makes that just adds another layer of crumminess to your experience so be kind to yourself as well for all your faults please Oh, it's like Sylvia's book, don't just do something, sit there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's one reason I was particularly interested in hearing your teaching. Uh-huh. Um, but what you said, um, if you say that a, a politician acts on delusion, um, and a professional politician would be better at acting... Professionally deluded. <laughs> Does that mean that people shouldn't become professionals at it? Because they'll be 
sure. Um, you know, we may we may want to devote our skills to to uh, to practicing uh, the skillful intentions and not the unskillful ones. But when when your partner asks whether you should just sit there, sitting there is helpful because it helps you see more clearly and make fewer errors. Act out of to see through delusion more frequently to make it more possible for us to act skillfully and not just out of wanting more pleasant experience, wanting to avoid unpleasant experience and thinking that the whole world is centers around me. And so it's more skillful to not be acting out of that. So, that's, so the sitting is skillful. It helps. Whether you want to become a professional politician, here's the deal. It's not... You know, it's not so much being able to, to manipulate and get people to do what you want. It's, are you willing to do nothing but that? Because that's really what, what it comes down. You think Barack Obama is doing anything but thinking about what he wants and what he doesn't want and moving other people in this way and that way? When you are a professional, you don't have time to do anything else. And if you were, when I was campaigning, my first campaign, I remember thinking over and over again, if I, if I take a couple hours off here, my opponent won't. I have to work all the time. Or else I'll lose. But you went and sat retreat for a couple Are you kidding? I didn't sit a retreat during my campaign. Uh-uh. I'll tell you, the last campaign I, I ran was um, two years ago. It was a district attorney's race. And, and my candidate would have been the first Native American district attorney in the country. Uh, not the first, but the only at this point. There was, um, and she depended on me right up till February. And I, I did do a retreat because I'm, I'm retired now. And at that point, I decided I was not, you know, I the retreat was important to me. I came back from my retreat and I'd arranged to have a manager in place. I came back from the retreat and the manager was running the show and I was not willing to fight with him. And he has had his idea about how things ought to be. You come back from a retreat and you're working out of a different mindset. You know? If you want to, if you want to be, if you want to be successful in politics, don't go on retreat in the middle of a campaign. It's my advice. <laughs> Maybe see, may seem silly, and but but you know, if you want to win, it's about winning. And all we all want to win, right? That means just get what we want. We want to prevail in an argument. We want to be recognized for all our accomplishments and wisdom. And we'll do what we need to to get that. So, oh, I'm sorry. If anyone who wants to flee, you're welcome to flee. And I'm, I'll, I'm happy to hang out uh, longer if you've got questions. As soon as you get bored, let me know. And I'm, 
ah, people in America, people around the planet are mostly deluded. Don't you think that's true? Yeah. We think there's a government. That's a delusion. <laughs> They're people. Well, that's the Buddha said that was a delusion. They were just aggregates walking around, <laughs> sense bases. But you know, you, the government is an idea. It's a thought. It's a concept. You know, you can't point at it, but we perceive it. So it's not there. But we think it's there, sort of like God. <laughs> and something's there, something's going on. Yeah. Was who? Ah. Yeah. 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 And you know, the, we we notice notice your own aversion to things, notice your own desire for things and treat this as an opportunity to see how you work. And I thank you so much for your attention to the dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.